Tonight I will talk about the Dahokando Pama Sutta, or in English it's called the Parable of the Log. After the Buddha's enlightenment, until he entered Parinibbana, the Buddha taught with a variety of forms depending on the occasion and depending on the mental disposition of his listeners. Sometimes he would use similes and analogies to make his listeners understand. At other times he would expose bare facts of mental and physical phenomena to make them understand. At other times he used questions in order to make his listeners understand. And sometimes he kept silent. So whatever the means were to teach his nuns, monks, lay disciples or ascetics and priests from other spiritual traditions, it was always aimed at making them understand the way leading to Nibbana or the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In the sutta called Dahukando Bama Sutta, the Buddha made something very simple to the subject of his talk. It was a log that was um, floating down the river Ganges. In English, this sutta is called the parable of the log. So with this simple example, the Buddha tried to explain to his disciples of how one can reach the ocean of Nibbana. This discourse was delivered at the time when the Buddha was staying in the city of Kosambi with a group of 500 monks. One day they left the city walking in a line with the Buddha at its head. And when they came near to the bank of the river Ganges, where there was a group of large trees, the Buddha pointed out to his attendant Ananda that he wanted to take some rest in the shade of these trees. And so the Venerable Ananda spread out the robe that he was carrying for the Buddha and prepared a seat for him. After the seat uh, had been prepared, the Buddha sat down, and after that, the monks also sat down. It is said, 250 at either side of the Buddha. So, 
while the Buddha was taking a rest, looking in the direction of the river Ganges, he saw a log that was floating in the current of the river. And immediately the Buddha had an idea. He thought that taking this log as an example would be good and beneficial for his bhikkhus to understand the Dhamma. He knew that some of them, by listening to his discourse, could realize Nibbana. And therefore, he lifted his arm and pointed towards the river. And he asked the monks, Bhikkhus, do you see this log which is floating in the current of the river Ganges? And the monk said, Yes, Venerable Sir. And then the Buddha continued to say, um, saying, If this log is not caught on the near bank, if this log is not caught on the far bank, if this log is not submerged under the water, if this log is not landing on a small island, if this log is not taken by humans, if this log is not taken by non-humans, if this log is not sinking into a whirlpool, and if this log is not become rotten inwardly, then this log will be carried by the current of the river Ganges all the way to the ocean. So, here the Buddha pointed out that if there were none of these eight obstacles, then the log would surely reach the ocean. The log would reach the ocean because the current of the river Ganges and all the currents of all the rivers, they incline towards the ocean. The water flows to the ocean. And then the Buddha continued to say, in the same way, because if you have none of these eight obstacles, you will reach Nibbana. And why is this so? Because Samadhiti, or right understanding, inclines towards Nibbana. Right understanding slants towards the cessation of suffering. When this was said, one of the younger monks requested the Buddha to explain this simile because he couldn't understand what the Buddha uh, was meaning with that. Among the disciples, there were disciples who were of sharp intellect or sharp understanding and they immediately knew what the Buddha was referring to. Some of the disciples were of middle um, understanding. They too, they still could understand what the Buddha wanted to say. But those of weak understanding, of weak intellect, they couldn't understand what the Buddha was referring to. And so, 
one of these younger monks asked the Buddha to explain this simile. So he asked him, Venerable Sir, what do you mean by being caught on the near bank? And the Buddha said, the near bank refers to the six internal sense bases. What are these six internal sense bases? They are nothing other than the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And they are also called the six sense doors because they are the doors through which the objects can be perceived and they enter through these doors and can be perceived by the mind. And then the young monk asked further, Venerable Sir, what do you mean by being caught on the far bank? And the Buddha replied, the far bank refers to the six external sense bases. And the external sense bases, they are visible forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and mind objects. And these six external sense bases, they are also referred to as the sense objects because they are the objects which can be perceived by the mind through the six sense doors. And the young man, the young monk, continued to ask uh, what the other points were referring to. And in short, they are being submerged under the water refers to attachment, clinging. Landing on a small island means pride and conceit. Then being taken by humans means to mix with lay people in an improper way. Being taken by non-humans means to dedicate one's merit uh, to be reborn in the Deva realm. And sinking into a whirlpool, this refers to the five courts of sensual pleasures. And being inwardly rotten means to pretend that one is virtuous, although one doesn't follow a course um, of virtuous conduct. So now, let's have a closer look at these different obstacles. So the first two obstacles are to be caught on the near bank and to be caught on the far bank. And as I just said, this refers to the internal sense bases or sense doors and the external sense bases or the sense objects. And so, independence on these sense bases, internal and external, defilements can arise. 
and when we are overcome by the defilements, then it means that we are either caught on the near bank or the far bank. And with this, we are not flowing with the current of the river anymore. And so, we will not reach the ocean. Now, we have the sense doors. As I said, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind. And we have the sense objects the visible forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects and mind objects. And so for us, in order to see, for example, we need the eyes, the sense door, and there must be some visible forms, the sense object. But that's not yet enough for us to see only when the sense object comes in contact with the sense door uh, arises the seeing consciousness. So let's say there is a flower. So only, which is the sense object, the visible form, so only when that object in the flower comes in contact with our eyes um, will there arise the seeing consciousness, and then we see, we say, I see a flower. But actually it's not the I that sees the flower, it's just the seeing consciousness which sees the flower, which perceives there is a flower. And in the same way it happens with the other sense objects and other sense doors. So, hearing a sound, like the sound of this bird, um, we have the sense object and we need the sense door, the ears. And only when the sound comes in contact with the ear, only then arises the hearing consciousness. We say, I hear the bird. But it's not the eye that hears, it's just the hearing consciousness that has arisen and is able to perceive that sound. If there is no contact between the object and the sense door, then the consciousness, in this case the hearing consciousness, would not arise. So there must always be the contact between the object and the door. If we would close all the windows, and if they were very tight, and if no sound could um, penetrate through the windows, then although the bird was singing outside, and although we have ear that function, that can actually hear, but because of the closed windows, because the sound cannot come in contact with our ears, then hearing consciousness would not arise, and so we wouldn't hear. And it happens in the same way with smell and the nose, or with taste and the tongue, or with tangible objects, 
and the body, or with mind objects and the mind. So when the external sense base, the sense object comes in contact with the internal sense base, the sensor, then the corresponding consciousness arises. And because of that, the defilements can arise too, if we are not very mindful. And with a lack of mindfulness, when the defilements arise, then we are caught by them, by either liking, wanting, attachment, or by dislike, repulsion, rejection, or anger, and the like. The next point that the Buddha mentioned was to be submerged under the water. And to be submerged under the water means all forms of clinging, attachment, desire, wanting, lust, uh, etc. If we are attached to material things, or if we are attached to persons, or even if we are attached to our views and opinions, then we will not be able to reach the ocean, because then we are submerged under the water. Attachment can range from very gross and obvious attachment to very subtle forms of attachment. All these forms of attachment, clinging, wanting, desire, they um, can be put under the term of loba. Loba is one of the three root evils. The others are dosa and moha. Loba, all forms of greed, wanting, attachment. Dosa, aversion, ill will, anger, hatred. And moha, delusion, ignorance or not knowing. Katrin Felder, uh, who is a Swiss meditation teacher, she calls these three root evils le trio infernal. Um, this is actually French. In English, English, it's the infernal trio. In Switzerland, uh, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland, all the children they learn French um, as their first foreign language. So everybody um, understands some French uh, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. So le trio infernal, or the infernal trio, is what keeps us in samsara, what causes all sorts of suffering. And one member of this trio is loba. As I said, greed, clinging, craving, attachment means 
holding on to an object, not wanting to let go. And some days ago, I told you the story of the monkey trap, where the monkey holding on to the sweet is just trapped by its holding on to the sweet, not wanting to let go. And in the scriptures, in the Abhidhamma, where Loba is described, it said that the function of Loba is sticking, firmly sticking to the object. And there, the simile used to describe this is, it's sticking like a piece of meat is sticking to a hot pan. Another way of describing this sticky nature of Loba was used by a Sinhalese monk. Uh, An Australian meditator who had been to Sri Lanka many years ago and who had meditated there with a Sinhalese meditation master, he told me how that Sinhalese meditation master tried to explain him this sticky nature of Loba. And apparently the meditation master, he put his hand together like this and then by very lively movements he showed that it was not um, possible to separate the hands. And he was going like this and like that, just couldn't get the hands uh, separated. And apparently he was doing that for quite some time until the nun who had to translate said, Pante, I think it's enough. (laughs) 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 And so, as this Australian Yogi explained it in the very way the meditation master had explained it. Um, it made, first of all, it made a lasting impression on his mind, and as he showed it to me in the same way, it stuck to my mind. <laughs> then the next point that the Buddha pointed out in the parable of the log was uh, the log stranded on a little island in the middle of the river. And to land on a small island, this refers to pride, conceit, or haughtiness. When we are overcome with conceit and pride, then we are stuck in an unwholesome uh, mental state that prevents us from realizing the truth. When we are get stuck on this little island in the river, then we are no longer immersed in the current of the river. And with that, we will not be carried down to the ocean. And so if a person is filled with pride or conceit, then that person, being overcome by that defilement, will not realize the phenomena as they truly are, 
and so that leads to a distorted or perverted um, notion of reality. Pride is also one of the uh, mental states and in Pali it is called mana. Mana is self-exaltation or the desire to advertise oneself. And this is expressed with the Pali word Keta Kamyatu. And this actually means to let fly the banner. A, a person who is proud wants to show off. That person wants to advertise herself or himself to boast. And of pride, it is said it should be regarded as madness. Pride can arise independence on one's beauty, on one's rank, on one's social position, on one's wealth, or depending on the caste, when there is such a thing, or independence on, one, on one's education, or fitness, whatever. Whatever is the uh, cause for our pride, we want to let other people know that we are better than them, that we are standing out. It's this self-exalting attitude which is not a wholesome uh, factor, but it leads to one's own detriment. Pride can be compa compared to rust. Rust normally arises on a piece of iron, and if the rust arises on a piece of iron, then the rust starts to eat the piece of iron on which uh, it has arisen. And so then the iron bar is slowly uh, eaten up until it, is, um, it starts to fall apart, until it's slowly getting destroyed. And when the iron bar is getting destroyed by the rust, then it is of no use anymore. And the same can be said with pride. When pride arouses, arises in our mind, then it's our mind that is slowly eaten up by our pride. And so a healthy and wholesome mind will slowly uh, be destroyed. One of my teachers, Sayada Uindaka, he said that pride is like a thorn into the eye. Pride, as I said, it's the self-exalting attitude and it can take different forms like there is the superiority complex being proud because we are better than others we are richer, we are fitter, we are more beautiful we have more knowledge, etc. But it can also be uh, as the equality complex, 
like we are proud that we are the same as others, that we have the same qualities as others, that we are um, in the same level with them or the same rank with them. Or it also can be the inferiority complex, like we are inferior, but we make that to exalt ourselves, saying, I don't need to be so rich as that person. It's okay when I'm like that. So whenever there is pride, there is the desire to let fly the banner. It's the ego or the I which wants to draw the attention onto itself and uh, then bids the world for recognition. Like in the first case, it's like the ego is saying, look, I am here, I am better than you. And the second version is the ego saying, look, I am here, I am equal to you. And the third version is the ego saying, look, I am here, I am a good for nothing, poor me. So pride or conceit in all its different manifestations is providing an underlying support system for our ego illusion. And the I, the ego or the self, they need to be fed for their survival. They need to, they they need food to survive. They need to be confirmed time and again. And therefore, pride or the ego relies on pride or confirm, uh, conceit to confirm its imaginary existence. Now the next two points that the Buddha pointed out in the parable of the log was to be caught by humans and to be caught by non-humans. To be caught by humans or to be taken away by humans refers to mix with lay people in an improper way. And because the Buddha was giving this discourse to a group of monks, he said that it is uh, to mix with lay people in an improper way. But even for lay people, um, it can mean to mix with other people in an improper way. We can divide people into four groups. The first group is the so-called business person or the community person. And this kind of person is involved in matters concerning the community or in matters uh, concerning his or her business or work. And because these matters, they take so much time and energy, this person has no time to perform uh, meritorious deeds like practicing uh, generosity 
or even um, practicing meditation. The second group is the family person. This means the person who has to look after his or her family, husband or wife, children, parents, maybe grandparents, mother-in-law, father-in-law, etc. And again here, because that person um, is involved so much in taking care of the family, looking after the needs of everybody, again, that person finds no time to engage in such wholesome acts as uh, practicing dana or going to a monastery, listen to a dhamma talk or going off for a retreat. And the third group, this is called the lazy bone, the lazy person. Such a person is just too lazy to do anything, just hanging around, lying around, um, wasting the time. And then the fourth group is the Dhamma person. And such a person engages in matters related to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. So that means matters related to the teachings of the Buddha, such as learning the scriptures, maybe teaching the scriptures, um, practicing generosity by offering requisites to nuns and monks, (coughs) or going to a monastery meditation center, working there as a volunteer or uh, supporting individual nuns and monks in their practice or supporting other lay people uh, for their practice. So, if a person belongs to one of the first three groups, the business person or community person, the family person or the lazy person, then that person is to be said to be taken away by humans. This means we should strive to become a Dhamma person so that we can escape the danger of being taken by humans. Nuns and monks they have dedicated their lives to practicing the Dhamma. So, their lives um, is mostly, uh, in their lives they mostly relate matters concerning uh, the Buddha Dhamma. But still, there is the danger of being taken by humans if they do not carefully watch out then uh, if they mix with lay people in an improper way, that can lead to their detriment. Lay people who have family, who have to work, or who are engaged in their community, um, for them it's a bit more difficult because they are already living in a worldly environment. But still, even as a lay person, um, we can 
make a strong commitment to uh, practice the Dharma uh, as much as we can, uh, as much as they can in their lay life. But it's quite a big challenge because the seductions or the obligations and tasks uh, are uh, strong and manifold. When we are engaged in our community, for example, um, there are so many things that need to be looked after, that need to be fixed, that need to be improved. And with the best of our intentions, we try to improve situations for ourselves, for other people in the community. But still, it's very difficult to get it ever perfect. And so because there are always things to do, always things to look after, things to improve, um, we can easily get lost in these things. And if we have managed to do one thing, we have been successful, then there is another thing waiting for our attention and to look after. And so this can keep us busy to the extent that we neglect the uh, more important things in our life, which means the spiritual practice or the beautification of our hearts and mind. Because in the end, the world doesn't become a better place by just imposing changes and setting up new laws or while having more and more peace conferences, while at the same time more and more money is spent on the production of new weapons. A radical change and transformation transformation can only take place when it comes from within. As long as greed and aversion are not uprooted in our minds, the world will not become a better place. All the wars that have been fought in the course of history, they have not been able to make the human race a happier and more peaceful one. Recently I have read that in all the wars that have taken place only in the last century, which means from 1900 to 1999. So in all these wars, over 100 million people have died, and this in the name of bringing peace to the world. It's so absurd and doesn't make sense at all. And even at the outset of this century, there are still many wars and armed conflicts happening in many places of this world. And still, politicians, leaders, they fight these wars in the name of bringing peace to humanity. It's really amazing to see how these people, these leaders, um, they have, in German we say, they have a a wooden blank, a wooden board in front of their heads. 
but I think it's not only a wooden board, it's a uh, one meter thick concrete wall. <laughs> To be taken away by non-humans, that's the next point that the Buddha mentioned. And this means that the person dedicates all the merit gained from a, a meritorious deed to be reborn in the Deva realm. Devas are celestial beings which live in the Deva realm and it is said that they enjoy a much greater degree of happiness and that they live in luxury. It is said that beings are reborn in the Deva realm by the power of their wholesome deeds, like practicing generosity or keeping sila, or other wholesome acts. And according to the Buddhist uh, cosmology, there are altogether six different Deva realms where people can be reborn. And each of these Deva realms, they involve a longer lifespan and an even uh, bigger variety of sense pleasures. But all these sense pleasures uh, and the life of the devas, they are also impermanent. At one stage, they come to an end and the devas, they have to pass away. And it is said that although they enjoy a much, much longer lifespan, when they uh, are about to pass away, then there are different signs appearing, such as the flowers that they are adorned with, they start to wither, or their bodies become unsightly. Or another sign is that sweat starts coming out under the armpits. Because devas, they are born spontaneously, they are not born from a womb, and once they are born or have come into existence, they um, are born as young, good-looking devas. And he said, female devas are always looking like 16-year-old young women. Male devas are like 20-year-old young men. And so for almost all their life, they look the same, eternally young and beautiful and good-looking, only shortly before they pass away do these signs appear. So for many people, the fact that devas enjoy quite a sorrowless and painless life, being able to indulge in much happiness and sense pleasures, so that fact compelled many people to dedicate their merits in order to become reborn as a deva. And so this was what the Buddha was referring to 
saying by being taken by non-humans. Whenever the Buddha was teaching, he did so with the aim of leading people from the unsatisfactory um, state of existence to a state of real and true peace and happiness. Although the happiness in the Deva realms is much greater than in the human world, still it's not permanent. Still, Devas have to die. And so, this cannot be taken for the true and lasting happiness. And therefore, the Buddha uh, mentioned and said that we only should dedicate our merits to the attainment of Nibbana, the state where all kinds of suffering have completely uh, been extinguished. For uh, Burmese people, the existence of devas is quite real and they, they believe in the deva realms and in the great pleasures and luxuries one can enjoy there. And the idea that they have of the deva realm is near uh, or is one like of paradise, like a place where there's a beautiful scenery with gorgeous mountains and golden forests with pristine clear lakes and nice rivers where all the buildings are beautifully adorned and where there are many beautiful gardens and nice and fragrant flowers. And Burmese people, they even compare some Western countries with the Deva realm. And, for example, Switzerland is a country they liken to the Deva realm. So, for them, Switzerland is the Deva realm on Earth. Uh, several times, when people asked me which country I was from, and I was telling them from Switzerland, then they said, Oh, that's like the Deva realm. <laughs> And so then, of course, they have this idea that everybody in Switzerland is just living in great happiness and has all these luxuries and is just uh, happy and joyous all the time. And so then I try to explain them that this is not actually the case and that people in Switzerland, too, are suffering. And it's difficult for Burmese people um, to see that. Then the next point the Buddha was pointing out was to sink into a whirlpool. And this refers to the indulgence in sense pleasures. And so the Buddha complex compared the sense pleasures to a whirlpool. Any object which comes near to the swirl in a whirlpool is drawn by this swirl and then is drawn down into the water. 
So once a person is caught by the swirl of the sense pleasures, then that person is most likely drawn into these sense pleasures. And so that person is sinking into the whirlpool and with that not flowing anymore with the current of the river and therefore not able to reach the ocean. In our ignorance, we do not see that in these sense pleasures, um, enjoying sense pleasures, that there is also a dangerous side to it. In our not knowing, we just follow these sense pleasures. We enjoy them and we gratify our desires by indulging in these pleasures. The eye constantly craves for nice and pleasurable visible objects. The ear craves constantly for nice and pleasurable sounds. Or the nose is always looking for nice and uh, fragrant smells. The tongue wants nice delicious tastes. The body wants nice, agreeable, pleasurable, uh, tangible objects. And the mind craves for nice, pleasurable, enjoyable mind objects. Sayadaw Upandita, the Burmese meditation master, once he was in the United States and there he said in this country there are lots of sensual pleasures freely available people are pulled down by the gravity of sensual pleasures once they can resist the pull of this gravity there could be many more monks when people let their action runs freely their mouth run freely their minds run freely it doesn't take much pull for them to fall in. And even with a slight gravitational pull, they dive into sensual pleasures. Isn't this so? That's by the Upandita. And the last point or last obstacles that the Buddha mentioned is when the lock becomes inwardly rotten. And this refers to pretending that one is virtuous, although one is not virtuous at all. Virtue or morality, this is called sila in Pali. And as we have already uh, seen, and third, in previous talks, sila is a basic requirement on the spiritual path. And in the context of the Buddha's teaching, sila appears in different forms and functions. So, for example, sila is one of the paramis. It's the second of the ten paramis. Or 
Sila is one of the bases of meritorious actions. There are altogether three bases of meritorious actions, and they are Sila, Dana, and Bhavana, or morality, generosity, and meditation. Or there are three trainings in the Buddha's teaching, and they are the training in Sila, the training in Samadhi, and the training in Panya. And these three trainings, they also uh, can be found in the Noble Eightfold Path. Like the Noble Eightfold Path is divided into these three groups or trainings. Training in morality, training in concentration, and training in wisdom. And further, in the uh, outline of the stages that the Vipassana meditator goes through, uh, there are also stages of purification that the meditators go through. And of the seven stages of purification, the very first purification is the purification of sila, the purification of morality. So sila, as moral conduct, is defined as the abstention from certain unwholesome deeds, from certain unwholesome verbal and physical actions. And in the Buddhist guidelines or precepts, we have them clearly defined. We have already spoken about the five basic guidelines or precepts. And so, abstaining from certain unwholesome deeds, this is called Varita Sila. Whereas the engagement in wholesome or beneficial deeds, this is called Charita Sila. So Sila is not only to be regarded as something that we have to abstain from, from or things that we shouldn't do, but Sila is also a beautiful practice to engage in something that is wholesome, beneficial, and helpful. We can actually take delight in our own goodness whenever we find that we are doing something wholesome or beneficial. So instead of letting our mind be pulled down by the things that we shouldn't do or that we can't do, it can become a joyful experience when we start to see how much good and beneficial things we actually can do. So, by practicing sila as the extension from unwholesome thing and as engaging in wholesome uh, deeds, then we offer fearlessness, we offer trust, we offer har- harmony, and confidence. And by offering fearlessness, trust, and confidence, um, we 
offer something which is very precious to other beings because that cannot be bought. It's only by our uh, abstention from killing, for example, that we offer fearlessness to other beings, that we offer trust. And so these five basic precepts or guidelines, they are, op- are also called the five great gifts. And they can be seen as a form of dana. So by keeping the five basic precepts, we also um, practice generosity at the same time. It's a form of dana. We offer trust, fearlessness, harmony, and so forth. Being endowed with sila, Sayadaw O Indaka has said that the person who is endowed with sila, a pure moral conduct, is like being adorned with flowers. Especially in Burma, uh, women, they like to adorn themselves with flowers. Uh, and especially with fragrant flowers, such as jasmine flowers, or there is a whole other variety of flowers which have very nice fragrance. And so Burmese Burmese women, they delight in putting flowers into their hair. And so a person adorned with the flowers of Sila will always radiant a very lovely and nice scent. Or, Saido O. Indaka said that sila can also be compared to cool and refreshing water. When we feel hot, or, uh, yeah, when we feel hot, then we sprinkle our face with water, or we even go and take a cool shower. And so then, after that, the hotness has gone and we feel cool and refreshed. Or we can extinguish a fire with water. But the fires of the defilements which are burning in our hearts and mind, they cannot be extinguished by uh, normal water. But by being endowed with sila, which is like cool, refreshing water, we can feel cool in our body and even some of the defilements caused by transgressing the precepts can be cooled down um, by the cool and soothing effect of sila. Or, Saido O. Indaka said, sila can be compared to the noblest door. Doors or gates are openings through which one can enter a building or uh, a palace or uh, a city because in ancient times cities they were surrounded by a city wall and most of the time they had four gates in the main directions 
a gate in the north, one in the west, one in the east, and one in the south. So, in the scriptures, sometimes Nibbana is referred to as the golden palace of Nibbana. And so in order to enter the palace wall, to the golden palace of Nibbana, one needs to enter it through a gate. And this gate is the Sila gate. Without being endowed with Sila, nobody can enter the golden palace of Nibbana. So, coming back to the parable of the log, so when the log is not rotten inwardly, then it will float in the current of the river and it will eventually reach the ocean. So when a person is not rotten inwardly, when a person is virtuous, then uh, that person can be taken by the current to the ocean of Nibbana. And so we have uh, dealt with all the eight obstacles that the Buddha mentioned in the Sutta. To summarize them, they are to caught on the near bank refers having defilements due to the six internal sense bases. And caught on the far bank means having defilement due to the six external sense bases. Then to be submerged under the waters means all forms of attachment, clinging, wanting, desire. And to land on a small island means pride and conceit. Being taken by humans means to mix with lay people in an improper way. And to be taken by non-humans means dedicating one's merit in order to become reborn as a deva. Then sinking into a whirlpool means the indulgence in the sense pleasures. And becoming rotten inwardly means to pretend to be virtuous, although one is not. When the Buddha was giving this discourse to the group of 500 monks, a cowherd named Nanda was nearby, nearby attending his cows, and he also listened to this discourse. And the cowherd Nanda was so much inspired by the Buddha's talk that he wanted to be taken by the current and reach the ocean, the ocean of Nibbana. And so he approached the Buddha and asked to be ordained a bhikkhu. But then, and he said, Venerable Sir, I'm afraid of being caught on the near bank and I'm afraid of being caught on the far bank. I'm afraid of being submerged under the water. So I want to be carried by the current of the river. I want to reach the ocean of Nibbana. Please ordain me as a monk. 
but then the Buddha said, My boy, you are a cowherd. So, first of all, you have to entrust the cows to their owners. Unless you do that, I cannot ordain you. And so Nanda did as the Buddha requested. He returned and entrusted the cows to their owners and then came back. And then the Buddha ordained Nanda as a bhikkhu. Bhikkhu Nanda then went into the forest and practiced uh, the Noble Eightfold Path. He was very mindful, he was very diligent, observing all mental and physical phenomena as they were arising in his body and mind. And because he was practicing so diligently, it didn't take long until he was carried away by the current of the Noble Eightfold Path and carried all the way to the ocean of Nibbana. So just as the Bhikkhu Nanda, may all of you be carried by the current of the river and reach the unsurpassed state of Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.